Section 3 of Anton Chekhov and Other Essays. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Anton Chekhov and Other Essays by Lev Shestov, translated by John Middleton Murray and Samuel Kotelyansky. Anton Chekhov, Oration from the Void, Part 3. 5. Thus the real, the only hero of Chekhov, is the hopeless man. He has absolutely no action left for him in life, save to beat his head against the stones. It is not surprising that such a man should be intolerable to his neighbors. Everywhere he brings death and destruction with him. He himself is aware of it, but he has not the power to go apart from men. With all his soul he endeavors to tear himself out of his horrible condition. Above all, he is attracted to fresh, young, untouched beings. With their help, he hopes to recover his right to life, which he has lost. The hope is vain. The beginning of decay always appears, all-conquering, and at the end Chekhov's hero is left to himself alone. He has nothing. He must create everything for himself. And this creation out of the void, or more truly the possibility of this creation, is the only problem which can occupy and inspire Chekhov. When he has stripped his hero of the last shred, when nothing is left for him but to beat his head against the wall, Chekhov begins to feel something like satisfaction. A strange fire lights in his burnt-out eyes, a fire which Mikhailovsky did not call evil in vain. Creation out of the void. Is not this task beyond the limit of human powers, of human rights? Mikhailovsky obviously had one straight answer to the question. As for Chekhov himself, if the question were put to him in such a deliberately definite form, he would probably be unable to answer. Although he was continually engaged in the activity, or more properly, because he was continually so engaged, without fear of mistake, one may say that the people who answer the question without hesitation, in either sense, have never come near to it, or to any of the so-called ultimate questions of life. Hesitation is a necessary and integral element in the judgment of those men whom fate has brought near to false problems. How Chekhov's hand trembled when he wrote the concluding lines of his tedious story. The professor's pupil, the being nearest and dearest to him, but like himself for all her youth, overstrained and bereft of all hope, has come to Kharkov to seek his advice. The following conversation takes place. Nikolai Stepanich, she says, growing pale and pressing her hands to her breast. Nikolai Stepanich, I can't go on like this any longer. For God's sake, tell me now, immediately, what shall I do? Tell me, what shall I do? What can I say? I am beaten. I can say nothing. But tell me, I implore you, she continues, out of breath and trembling all over her body. I swear to you, I can't go on like this any longer. I haven't the strength. She drops into a chair and begins to sob. She throws her head back, wrings her hands, stamps with her feet. Her hat falls from her head and dangles by its string. Her hair is loosened. Help me! Help! she implores. I can't bear it any more. There is nothing that I can say to you, Katie, I say. Help me, she sobs, seizing my hand and kissing it. You're my father, my only friend. You're wise and learned, and you've lived long. You were a teacher. Tell me what to do. Upon my conscience, Katie, I do not know. I am bewildered and surprised, stirred by her sobbing, and I can hardly stand upright. Let's have some breakfast, Katie, I say, with a constrained smile. Instantly, I add in a sinking voice, 
I shall be dead soon, Katty. Only one word, only one word, she weeps and stretches out her hands to me. What shall I do? But the professor has not the word to give. He turns the conversation to the weather, Karkov and other indifferent matters. Katie gets up and holds out her hand to him, without looking at him. I want to ask her, he concludes his story, so it means you won't be at my funeral. But she does not look at me. Her hand is cold and like a stranger's. I escort her to the door in silence. She goes out of my room and walks down the long passage without looking back. She knows that my eyes are following her, and probably on the landing she will look back. No, she did not look back. The black dress showed for the last time. Her steps were stilled. Goodbye, my treasure. The only answer which the wise, educated, long-lived Nikolai Stepanovitch, a teacher all his life, can give to Katy's question is, I don't know. There is not, in all his great experience of the past, a single method, rule, or suggestion which might apply, even in the smallest degree, to the wild incongruity of the new conditions of Katy's life and his own. Katie can live thus no longer, neither can he himself continue to endure his disgusting and shameful helplessness. They both, old and young, with their whole hearts, desire to support each other. They can between them find no way. To her question, what shall I do, he replied, I shall soon be dead. To his, I shall soon be, be dead, she answers with wild sobbing, wringing her hands and absurdly repeating the same words over and over again. It would have been better to have asked no question, not to have begun that frank conversation of souls. But they do not yet understand that. In their old life, talk would bring them relief and frank confession, intimacy. But now, after such a meeting, they can suffer each other no longer. Katya leaves the old professor, her foster father, her true father and friend, in the knowledge that he has become a stranger to her. She did not even turn round towards him as she went away. Both felt that nothing remained save to beat their heads against the wall. Therein each acts at his own peril, and there can be no dreaming of a consoling union of souls. 6. Chekhov knew what conclusions he had reached in the tedious story and Ivanov. Some of his critics also knew and told him so. I cannot venture to say what was the cause, whether fear of public opinion or his horror at his own discoveries, or both together, but evidently there came a moment to Chekhov when he decided at all costs to surrender his position and retreat. The fruit of this decision was Ward Number 6. In this story the hero of the drama is the same familiar Chekhov character, the Doctor. The setting, too, is quite the usual one, though changed to a slight extent. Nothing in particular has occurred in the doctor's life. He happened to come to an out-of-the-way place in the provinces, and gradually, by continually avoiding life and people, he reached a condition of utter willlessness, which he represented to himself as the ideal of human happiness. He is indifferent to everything, beginning with his hospital, where he can hardly ever be found, where, under the reign of the drunken brute of an assistant, the patients are swindled and neglected. In the mental ward reigns a porter who is a discharged soldier. He punches his restless patients in the shape. The doctor does not care, as though he were living in some distant other world, and does not understand what is going on before his very eyes. He happens to enter his ward and to have a conversation with one of his patients. He listens quietly to him, but his answer is words instead of deeds. He tries to show his lunatic acquaintance that external influences cannot affect us in any way at all. 
The lunatic does not agree, becomes impertinent, presents objections, in which, as in the thoughts of many lunatics, nonsensical assertions are mixed with very profound remarks. Indeed, there is so little nonsense that from the conversation you would hardly imagine that you have to do with a lunatic. The doctor is delighted with his new friend, but does nothing whatsoever to make him more comfortable. The patient is still under the porter's thumb, as he used to be, and the porter gives him a thrashing on the least provocation. The patient, the doctor, the people round, the whole setting of the hospital and the doctor's rooms are described with wonderful talent. Everything induces you to make absolutely no resistance and to become fatalistically indifferent. Let them get drunk, let them fight, let them thieve, let them be brutal. What does it matter? Evidently, it is so predestined by the supreme council of nature. The philosophy of inactivity which the doctor professes as it were prompted and whispered by the immutable laws of human existence. Apparently, there is no force which may tear one from its power. So far, everything is more or less in the Chekhov style, but the end is completely different. By the intrigues of his colleague, the doctor himself is taken as a patient into the mental ward. He is deprived of freedom, shut up in a wing of the hospital, and even thrashed, thrashed by the same porter whose behavior he had taught his lunatic acquaintance to accept, thrashed before his acquaintance's very eyes. The doctor instantly awakens as though out of a dream. A fierce desire to struggle and to protest manifests itself in him. True, at this moment he dies, but the idea is triumphant still. The critics could consider themselves quite satisfied. Chekhov had openly repented and renounced the theory of non-resistance, and I believe Ward Number 6 met with a sympathetic reception at the time. In passing, I would say that the doctor dies a very beautifully. In his last moments he sees a herd of deer. Indeed, the construction of this story leaves no doubt in the mind. Chekhov wished to compromise, and he compromised. He had come to feel how intolerable was hopelessness, how impossible the creation from a void. To beat one's head against the stones, eternally to beat one's head against the stones, is so horrible that it were better to return to idealism. Then the truth of the wonderful Russian saying was proved, Don't forswear the beggar's wallet, nor the prison. Chekhov joined the choir of Russian writers and began to praise the idea, but not for long. His very next story, The Duel, has a different character. Its conclusion is also apparently idealistic, but only in appearance. The principal hero, Laevsky, is a parasite like all Chekhov's heroes. He does nothing, can do nothing, does not even wish to do anything, lives chiefly at others' expense, runs up debts, seduces women. His condition is intolerable. He is living with another man's wife, whom he had come to loathe as he loathes himself, yet he cannot get rid of her. He is always in straitened circumstances and in debt everywhere. His friends dislike and despise him. His state of mind is always such that he is ready to run no matter where, never looking backwards, only away from the place where he is living now. His illegal wife is in roughly the same position, unless it be even more horrible. Without knowing why, without love, without even being attracted, she gives herself to the first commonplace man she meets, and then she feels as though she had been covered from head to foot in filth, and the filth had stuck so close to her that not ocean itself could wash her clean. This couple lives in the world, in a remote little place in the Caucasus, and naturally attracts Chekhov's attention. There is no denying the interest of the subject. Two persons befouled who can neither tolerate others nor themselves. For contrast's sake, Chekhov brings Laevsky into collision with the zoologist von Koren, who has come to the seaside town on important business. 
everyone recognizes its importance to study the embryology of the Medusa. Von Koren, as one may see from his name, is of German origin, and therefore deliberately represented as a healthy, normal, clean man, the grandchild of Goncharov Stoltz, the direct opposite of Laevsky, who on his side is nearly related to our old friend Oblomov. But in Goncharov, the contrast between Stoltz and Oblomov is quite different in nature and meaning to the contrast in Chekhov. The novelist of the forties hoped that a rapprochement with Western culture would renew and resuscitate Russia. And Oblomov himself is not represented as an utterly hopeless person. He is only lazy, inactive, unenterprising. You have the feeling that were he to awaken, he would be a match for a dozen Stoltzes. Laevsky is a different affair. He is awake already. He was awakened years ago, but his awakening did him no good. He does not love nature. He has no god. He or his companions had ruined every trustful girl he had known. All his life long he had not planted one single little tree, nor grown one blade of grass in his own garden, nor while he lived among the living had he saved the life of one single fly, but only ruined and destroyed and lied and lied. The good-natured sluggard Oblomov degenerated into a disgusting, terrible animal, while the clean Stoltz lived and remained clean in his posterity. But to the new Oblomov he speaks differently. Von Koren calls Laevsky a scoundrel and a rogue, and demands that he should be punished with the utmost severity. To reconcile them is impossible. The more they meet, the deeper, the more merciless, the more implacable is their hatred for each other. It is impossible that they should live together on the earth. It must be one or the other, either the normal Von Koren or the degenerate, decadent Laevsky. Of course, all the external material force is on Von Koren's side in the struggle. He is always in the right, always victorious, always triumphant, in act no less than in theory. It is curious that Chekhov, the irreconcilable enemy of all kinds of philosophy, not one of his heroes philosophizes, or if he does, his philosophizing is unsuccessful, ridiculous, weak, and unconvincing, makes an exception for von Koren, a typical representative of the positive, materialistic school. His words breathe vigor and conviction. They have in them even pathos and a maximum of logical sequence. There are many materialist heroes in Chekhov's stories, but in their materialism there is a tinge of veiled idealism, according to the stereotyped prescription of the sixties. Such heroes Chekhov ridicules and derides. Idealism of every kind, whether open or concealed, roused feelings of intolerable bitterness in Chekhov. He found it more pleasant to listen to the merciless menaces of a downright materialist than to accept the dry-as-dust consolations of humanizing idealism. An invincible power is in the world, crushing and crippling man. This is clear and even palpable. The least indiscretion and the mightiest and the most insignificant alike fall victims to it. One can only deceive oneself about it so long as one knows of it only by hearsay. But the man who had once been in the iron claws of necessity loses forever his taste for idealistic self-delusion. No more does he diminish the enemy's power, he will rather exaggerate it. And the pure logical materialism which von Koren professes gives the most complete expression of our dependence upon the elemental powers of nature. Von Koren's speech has the stroke of a hammer and each blow strikes not Laevsky, but Chekhov himself on his wounds. He gives more and more strength to von Koren's arm, he puts himself in the way of his blows. For what reason? Decide as you may. Perhaps Chekhov cherished a secret hope that self-inflicted torment might be the one road to a new life. He has not told us so. 
Perhaps he did not know the reason himself, and perhaps he was afraid to offend the positive idealism which held such undisputed sway over contemporary literature. As yet he dared not lift up his voice against the public opinion of Europe, for we do not ourselves invent our philosophical conceptions, they drift down on the wind from Europe. And, to avoid quarreling with people, he devised a commonplace, happy ending for his terrible story. At the end of the story, Laevsky reforms. He marries his mistress, gives up his dissolute life, and begins to devote himself to transcribing documents, in order to pay his debts. Normal people can be perfectly satisfied, since normal people read only the last lines of the fable, the moral. And the moral of the duel is most wholesome. Laevsky reforms and begins transcribing documents. Of course, it may seem that such an ending is more like a jibe at morality, but normal people are not too penetrating psychologists. They are scared of double meanings, and, with the sincerity peculiar to themselves, they take every word of the writer for good coin. Good luck to them. End of section three. Recording by Wervin.